what a joy. Uh, we've got the the one and only Layman Pascal uh, joining us today. And um, well, I'll, I'll, here's a little bio I wrote up. Uh, so you can fill this in or, or supplement or, or even de- deduct from it if you'd like. But I, here's what I've got. All right. Layman Pascal is a metamodern philosopher, integral theorist, post-metaphysical metaphysician, and host of the podcast, The Integral Stage, a platform to explore emergent integral perspectives, host innovative thinkers, communicators, and creators from around the world, and reflect the larger integrative meta-community back to itself in all its forms. Um, anything to add? I could also throw in that uh, you you write, uh, you're on Substack, uh, you're... Your 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 essence is floating in the ether. I don't know any uh, any uh, nothing to add or take away. Your your vision of me is is exactly what I am. All right, not <laughs> <laughs> not one jot or tittle shall be no, subtracted. When Zizek gives talks, he very often talks about the sort of Lacanian definition of castration as like the difference between who you are and who people say you are. So he often like lets them say all these things about him and then thanks them for castrating him. Nice. So, <laughs> you're I don't welcome. Get too involved in the difference between me and what gets said about me. It's a dangerous territory. Well, you're a very unassuming fellow, which I actually appreciate uh, very much about you. So you're not out there, uh, you know, all flashy and showy. You're just doing your thing, but it's good stuff. Um, so yeah, I guess I'd be curious from your perspective, if, if someone were to say, well, what does metamodern spirituality mean? And, and, and is it the same thing as integral theory? Is it, uh, is it just some post postmodern cultural, you know, uh, like fad or, um, so yeah, metamodern spirituality, give us your take. Well, all those terms, you know, they all have like a, an expanded version and like a minimal version. So I think, you know, the most inclusive way we can think about it is what are the minimal conditions for integral or the minimal conditions for metamodernism? And I think there's part of it is harder to find because it's an aesthetic, it's an ethos, it's an emergent spirit. And if you didn't grow up in the last couple of decades, you probably don't quite understand how it's supposed to feel. Uh, But intellectually, um, it's a way of saying, hey, we take... We understand there's a problem with modernism. There's also some virtues to modernism. We really agree with and need to get further into the postmodern critique of the modern. And we're aware that there's some things we left behind in traditional and indigenous societies, right? And both integral and metamodernism uh, affirm these multi-paradigmatic approaches. Somehow going forward has to make sense of all those values, all those cognitive operating systems. So then you go, well, what does religion and spirituality look like in that context? Um, And could it play a role in solving the emerging meta crisis or the the accumulating number of crises that are anchored in modernism that we haven't been able to solve from any of these individual paradigms? Uh, When I look at that, you know, Bruce Alderman invited me to be in the Foundation for Integral Religion and Spirituality. And one of the first things I started looking at there is, how do you define religion outside of just one of these paradigms? Because the notion that religion is um, a large, self-confessed belief membership group affirming a particular cosmology and symbol set... um, that's the traditional, what we'd call an integral amber or blue model. And 
modernism is happy to say, well, yeah, that's what it is. That's clearly what they're doing. And we're not doing that now. We've moved on. But that's never exactly what it was, because there were all these earlier stages and there's all these later stages in which a phenomenon similar to that can occur. So you got to really unpack that and go, hey, look, everything in traditional society is about self-professed belief membership groups around symbol sets. That's not specific to religion. Religion has got to be defined in a functional way that could show up in any of these different world spaces. What does that look like? Right. And to me, it looks like the uh, attempt to create an interpersonal and intergenre resonant surplus in a cultural field. And when that works, the culture is religionizing. It gets some excess numinous feeling. It starts to undergo an apotheosis. It experiences itself as divine in some sense, based on the art of its day and the science of its day and the mysticism of its day and the politics of its day, all of that all together. And for me, that's the analog to the individual process of spiritualizing our experience which is creating a resonant numinous surplus out of our individual subjective subsystems. So that's my general take. I want to go to some, some language you've used. Um, I, one of the things that really kind of, uh, kind of, I don't want to say put you on my radar because I already knew about you, but when I was really like, I, I saw this future faces of spirit uh, presentation that you gave. And I was like, yes, that there's so much there that I want to dig into and, and, and seem to just encapsulate, epitomize um, so much of the kind of what I would think of as a very uh, meta modern spiritual perspective. And so a lot of what I'll be dipping into here in some of these questions is some of the language that you used in that uh, presentation. Um, and which I encourage, and I'll provide a link to it too, for other people to go check out. Um, so uh, you say at one point, uh, we could define religion as the degree to which we embody the sacred style, the sacramental mode in our lives, in our shared lives. It's not the purification of culture back to some fantasized past moment when things were sacred. It is to do again and endlessly that which makes the current world holy and whole and healthy. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to some of that, that deeper idea. There's a strong current, I think, in a lot of things that you say that uh, locates the, the essence of religion and spirituality within uh, embodied uh, existence, within uh, the life force, within health. Um, and so maybe say a little bit, if you could, about how you understand sacred naturalism and how that informs your understanding of religion as a category. And then we can kind of go a little bit from there. Sure. I think um, sacred naturalism has always been an element of religion, but I think it's especially important to uh, privilege some of the sacred naturalistic elements of it going forward at this point in history. Uh, for me, that means, like I showed on that chart the other day, it's the naturalization of the sacred and the sacralization of the natural, right? And what does that mean? Well, on the one hand, it means we've got to take uh, science and the study of the natural cosmos a lot more seriously and not experience that as some kind of uh, disenchanting alternative to the sacred. It's the root of the sacred. And for me, I reference a lot of this stuff back to Nietzsche in terms of you know, Zarathustra's call to return to the body and return to the earth to have an embodied, ecologically focused um, post-metaphysical spiritualism, 
which to me is also shamanism. I sometimes think about planetary shamanism, which is, you know, if if the global village is the village now, then who are the shamans in that village? And isn't shamanism a kind of in very immediate, very creative, improvisational, ecological, embodied way to go about thinking about spirituality? And if we don't really bring the body in and the ecology in, then our spirituality runs the risk of drawing away from those things, as it often has in history. And when it draws away from the body, it loses the element of health. And when it draws away from ecology, it allows the biosphere to be at risk. And so right now, particularly, we can't afford to not anchor our religiosity in health and in functional ecology. Now, that said, there's a whole bunch of other things to that, because I think of naturalness as a kind of production, just as I think of uh, spiritualization or sacralization as a kind of production. And I think one of the things that metamodern spirituality has to do is take from modernism the idea that whatever the truth is has to be very science friendly. And what it takes from pluralism, or one of the things it takes from pluralism, is that it has to be constructivist in some degree, that different cultures are making this stuff up differently. Uh, and so the cultural construction of a science friendly, pro-naturalist, pro-embodied form of spiritual religiosity, that seems to be the thing that meets the challenges of the multiple paradigms and also of the emerging metacrisis and aligns with the ancient indigenous way of human beings operating in the world. Yes. Okay, cool. Awesome. I, so, so, so here's a thought, here's a question then, right? Because I think that what, um, I think this is one of the, the issues that sort of becomes a real sticking point for a lot of people, especially if, if you're kind of at that blue or traditional or blue or amber, uh, traditional kind of stage, let's say to use the integral framing of it. Um, is that what you talk about is the naturalization of the sacred can and often does feel like a kind of disenchantment. It feels like a reductionistic sort of, um, we've taken this thing that was so special and interesting and magical to you, but now we've explained its magic away, right? And there's a sense of, um, uh, you know, it's like, don't rob me of my illusions, you know? And uh I, I know many, many people for whom that has been a huge challenge spiritually is like, what do you do with that? It can create a lot of uh, existential despair. It can throw people into nihilism. Um, so I guess if you could speak a little bit to that movement for how, how do you think we can make that process um, or speak about it in a healthy way that's that's supportive that it's um that it does the sort of salutary work that you're talking about rather than leading people sort of uh you know into despair and feeling like they're losing something yeah well the, the first thing i would say in general is that if my hypothesis is that if the different castes and genres and types of society are mixing together better then you do get the production of a new sacredness that is appropriate to whatever we currently know about the world so i'm going to put that aside but that's the framing um, underneath there's sort of two kinds of things one is like how i hold the mythopoetic dimension of existence and the other is this general tendency we've had for the last couple hundred years of people growing up in religious contexts and then having to do something about that or release that when they face the modern world. 
Uh, and I think that that stress and that pressure and that loss is exaggerated. Some of it's some of it's natural, right? Every time you go through a growth phase, when you start to become an adolescent, right? You're gonna you're gonna lose a lot of the things of childhood, and you don't know how to get them back yet in a new form. So every phase transition is going to involve loss and a struggle and a creative challenge of putting a new self together. That's just a given. But I think the way we've talked about traditional spirituality and also the way we teach modern knowledge uh, really thwarts this process and keeps it from happening in a very natural way, right? I think if you grow up in a traditional situation where the tradition is sort of forced a little bit too hard, then there, there's an unnatural element to that. If, if you're given religion before you're ready, to me, that's no different than being sexualized before you're ready, where even if you enjoyed it, it's going to traumatize you somewhere in the system and leave a wobble in there, right? So like kids, kids, nobody has trauma when they let go of their belief in Santa Claus, and it doesn't sacrifice their sense of meaning or their ability to relate to the folk or any of those things. But when they go, oh my God, I think maybe Jesus isn't real, <laughs> right? That's tough for them because they got that thing in a, in a way that was a little bit too pressurized. So if we had healthier, more relaxed people teaching their religious mythological traditions in a healthier, more relaxed way, it wouldn't be as abrupt a transition. Now, the other part of it is there's a lot of things wrong in the modern context, right? First of all, they're not really, in my view, educating people to be modern citizens. They're sort of bullshit educating you and presenting it as if it's a rival belief system. Second of all, the modern economic and industrial context sabotages the life world of traditional people, leaving the traditional mythological person in a really unsettled, distressed form where they can't live their best version of themselves. So if those problems were addressed, you'd have a much more graceful pipeline for people to move at their own natural pace through these different phases. Now, when you get to, let's say, a modern rational phase, does that have to be disenchanting? I don't think it does. I don't think Einstein found it disenchanting. Right? I, I personally didn't, and I think that's because of the way I went through my earlier phases. And the point where I'm at now is, I think that the mythological dimension can really interpenetrate our everyday world. I call it mythocolloquialism in a beautiful, natural way. And that our, our sense of a huge divide between ourselves and the other people who are mythic um, that's really problematic. And whether that's the Christians judging the pagans, or whether it's the awakening modern scientific person judging the tradition they came out of, uh, it's not necessary to export the mythic resonance onto the other and then go, well, we're stuck over here with the truth and they're over there with the mythic beliefs. Because if we really understand the mythic beliefs more deeply, we'll find that they pertain to the very things we're doing all the time. And if we and it would allow us to say appreciate them more deeply and also enact that mythic resonance ourselves. And my classic example is with the failure of translation with a lot of the ancient terms. Whereas we would say we speak very readily of nature and poetry and love and sex and war and death. That's what they were doing in ancient Greece or in ancient Norway, right? But we don't translate those words. We keep those words in the ancient language and say, well, they believed in cartoon gods. They had a god of war. I'm like, well, that's weird because it was just their word for war. We have a word for war and we sort of pejoratively treat them as children and also 
um, experience our concept of war as something that's deprived of mythic emotional significance. So we're starving ourselves and belittling others by separating the mythic resonance from the generic concepts when really in healthy, normal ancient cultures, in my view, all generic concepts were experienced with mythic resonance. And that was the plurality of the paganism. What do you make then? It seems like what is a recurring kind of idea uh, in navigating the transition from the traditional to the modern and, and doing that in a meaningful way. It's the uh, appreciation for metaphor in the way that you're talking about or poetic language, right? I mean, yeah, you could say, you know, um, I don't know, it, and war ravaged the area or something like that. And that's a poetic framing of war. But you could also say, let's say, you know, 2000 years from now, archaeologists are, you know, studying paleontologists are studying our fragments and they're like, oh, war was the name of their war deity. And they understood war to have ravaged the field or whatnot. And so to kind of pick up on all that, it's like, it seemed a lot seems to hinge on this notion that mythological language uses a metaphorical framing for ideas. Um, and, and that seems to be sort of this life raft from uh, traditional mythological thinking uh, to make that sort of transrational move. Is that something that you think is, is, I mean, is that how you would kind of, um, would you assent to that framing of that idea? And yeah. Yeah, I would assent to it, but I would expand it a little. Yeah, whereas, please do. Um, there's a tendency in, let's say, modern rational scientific society to think that these other people in, use this metaphoric language. And I think that's kind of a false idea. I think it's a byproduct of the fact that we don't train it, right? We don't ask kids to draw a picture of war and tell a story about what he did. Um, however, like if you were talking to John Verveke, he would insist that metaphor is a much broader phenomenon than we normally think of, that all of our perceptual assessments and our basic cognitive and conceptual functions are in fact metaphorical. The notion of meaning is, is a metaphor. So it's not like there were these metaphorical people and we've moved on and need to appreciate them. What we need to appreciate is that metaphor is a much broader category than we thought, and it's here with us, and we have to treat it um, with the richness that they treated theirs with, even though we're looking at a broader set of metaphors. So do you, where do you think um, the literalism comes from today? I mean, I tend to equate a lot of uh, the, the, the extant like fundamentalisms uh, with that sort of um, traditionalism. I tend to think of it as sort of, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, you know, I, I come from a conservative evangelical background. So a literal understanding of the Bible and its inerrancy and all that sort of stuff was really important. Um, and yet there's an interesting way also in which it's the case that that literalism is itself an invention of modernity. That sort of precisely the ways in which the misunderstanding of metaphorical language, poetry, myth, kind of uh, after, after modernity shows up in these different ways of knowing or sort of uh, more thoroughly, you know, explored uh, in empiricism and, and observation and whatnot, that like now there's this sense that, oh, there's like, it's almost like modernity invents literalism. So you could go so far as to say, and that then it gets kind of misapplied backwards so that people look at their myths and say, oh no, this literally happened when maybe 
2000, 3000 years ago, the, the very notion of literal truth wasn't as separated from poetic truth. Um, do you think that's the case or how would you, how would you sort of articulate the relationship between like current fundamentalisms and, and the, the literalism quote unquote that they employ in looking at their, their texts and their beliefs? Yeah, that's a, that's a really deep question. And I think there's a couple elements to it. Like um, there is an element of what I think of as traditional culture, which is um, unproblematically absolutist, right? They go, this, this is an unerring document. And what they really mean is they want you to make a gesture of loyalty, just like they want you to say your mother's a wonderful mother, or they want you to affirm any of the other folk symbols in which we live. Because being part of a, a nation or an ethnicity or a religion, uh, part of it is just um, going aside from your personal feelings and demonstrating fealty. And they're not really, they're not really rational. They're, they're not, they don't have an argument about why 100% is 100%, right? They just want you to make the gesture. They go on and you say, just profess your allegiance to Jesus and you're in. Great. <laughs> no problem. It's inactive. So I think that that can be done in a healthy way or an unhealthy way in terms of that cognitive style. But I don't think it really, I mean, the unhealthy way is always going to be uh, a little bit destructive, a little bit hardened, a little bit contracted, a little bit over-reified, the way unhealthy versions of anything are. But what we see in the last couple hundred years is a, uh, a sort of retroactive effect from the relationship between modernity and traditionalism. Uh, and I think where we see it most is where the traditionalist views themselves through the putative modern lens that they see as dominating the society. And the, I mean, the way I would think about that is, I mean, we often think about traditionalists as very fixed, but they're actually quite mutable. Like today's American Christian is, does not believe what Kierkegaard was taught or what they were taught in the 800s in Rome. It, it's very fluid, but it takes a little longer takes a couple generations. If I'm saying what grandpa was saying, then this is what we've always believed in this community. So there is this adaptability within the traditionalist. And the adaptability, I think, takes over generalized virtue claims from the society as an element of the thematic symbolism of our team. If our team's always hearing that science is good, and we might hear that for 100 years, then we go, you know what? symbolically science is good therefore we're scientific and they are irrational so now i have this idea even if i'm totally irrational i just use science as a way to demonize my rival ethnicity or the anti-team so i think there's a way in which those people take on scientific factualism you know the desire to get the facts right about the world go wait facts are important i've heard that facts are good my team is inherently good as my loyalty stance. Therefore, my team is inherently factual. Therefore, our mythology is a fact. And I think that's a weird move that didn't necessarily happen in the ancient world. That only happens when you get the dominance of modernity. Do you think that there are these sorts of pathological or unhealthy approaches? Are they just always going to be around they're always going to kind of sabotage religious language they're always going to do this thing or is there is there a way in which you can kind of generate a new discourse that that somehow um helps to alleviate that or you know uh at least make it less prevalent um yeah what do you what do you do about that 
on the one hand, the contrast between people who are at different stages of sophistication in their own thinking and feeling, that's always going to be with us. So whatever is healthy has to take that into account. You're always going to run into people who seem primitive and clunky relative to what you're working on, and you're not going to notice that you seem that way to somebody else. Now, pathology, it's always going to be a risk, but there are a lot of things we can do to mitigate that, right? At the especially because we have all this new information. We have a good idea now. What are the nutrients your body needs? How much hydration does it need, right? Oh, maybe you shouldn't do this to kids, right? We've got a set of things. And if, you, if we constrain ourselves to try to do those things, then you produce much healthier people. And so you get healthier versions of each of these phenomena. It's going to be tricky in terms of creating the social and ecological niches in which people can do that, um, but that's possible once we have the idea that it's possible. And I think the main thing is going to be the training of a lot of people who are metamodern diplomats, people who are capable of um, sincerely and ironically feeling into the different languaging and thinking styles of these different paradigms. Because the more of those people there are, the more capacity the overall system has to allow healthy interface and to keep one group from demonizing the other group, right? Some of that's just physical. Obviously, somebody releases a plague or drops a bomb on somebody or goes over and suppresses their economy, right? There's real hard stuff, but there's also softer stuff, how we think, how we articulate each other, that kind of stuff. And the, the metamodern diplomat can really solve a lot of that. If there were a thousand times more people like us who could go to all these groups and specialize in the interfaces and help them each understand how to talk and think with each other in ways that don't take away any of the things they're doing, nor exaggerate any of the claims they're making, then we'd be in a really robust, flexible condition. Yeah. So that's an interesting uh, segue to this sort of issue that I, I'm... Let me ha- let me see if I can phrase it. Um, well, I'll use some of your language. You you it all so it, it hinges on the question of to what degree uh, do we make use of what's given, and to what degree do we try to generate something new? Because my concern is that um, you know we have these words, God, soul, spirit, what have you, but they're so laden with baggage of millennia. They're so laden um, with connotation and association uh, that we can try to redefine or uh, kind of do the work to try to, you know, bring them back to life in a way that's, that's, that's meaningful and evocative to today. But we're sort of, you know, swimming upstream. We're sort of having to simultaneously kind of fight so much of what we're inheriting in the process of trying to uh, keep these things alive. That my question is sort of, um, is it worth it? And, um, you know, so, so for example, you say we certainly could give birth to a glorious new religion without any of our inherited terminology, but there is also no need to disown or contract away from these powerful words, you know, you're talking about God and soul and spirit. And then you go on to kind of give uh, different descriptions or definitions of these ideas, which we can maybe get into in a little bit. Um, but I guess my concern would be, um, yeah, I, I, as I've said it, if, if, 
if I'm using a word like God, and now maybe, maybe for, let's say you're using a word like God, and maybe in your mind, you're thinking this sort of, uh, you know, uh, the emergent coherence of our various, you know, selves into a harmonizing whole that, that realizes, you know, the uh, greater human potential that's greater than the sum of its parts or something like that. Um, but another person is thinking, yeah, that, you know, old guy in the clouds who's looking down on me and, you know, making sure I'm doing everything right and making sure that everyone I am not like kind of goes to a bad place. Those are such radically different definitions that are sort of coming together in the same word um, that at what point does it become kind of more cost effective to use a gross analogy to just sort of, you know, those are sunk costs. We're going to we're going to move on to something else. And maybe it requires coming up with some new terms, some new frameworks and whatnot. Um, I think you understand the question. Yeah. How how do you approach? Yeah. And I, you know, uh, Jim Rutt from Game B and I have had some discussions about this because he's he's got an allergy against a lot of these terms based on how and where he was raised. And I don't have that same allergy. So it's curious. And, you know, and I think that moving forward in terms of the meta community, that's a community in which we say there's no one terminology, right? It's actually better if we talk about it in a bunch of ways, because we want to make sure we're talking about insight structures that can be languaged in multiple ways and not particular languagings that might, uh, hide the inside structure we're talking about. Uh, when it comes to tradition, you know, uh, Ken Wilbers proposed this notion of traditional religious groups as escalators so that you could have a version because a lot of people are in these systems. You could have a version at each of the developmental levels. And as long as it's supportive and healthy and allows you to move to the next one, then that's pretty good because the world just factually 80% of people are in one of those traditional groups. I think of it as a kind of a left-right thing, right? If we thought of metamodern spirituality as having a left and a right polarization, the conservative one would be like, well, we're going to do this within the traditional symbol set. And the left-leaning one is like, no, we're going to radical, we're going to progressively move on to a new symbol set. <laughs> I like, I like that. I like that. It's interesting. Right. And, like with anything else, you're going to need some kind of centrist alliance to get anything done. Uh, I think there's a set of thinking, though, that the metamodern individual has to bring forward or maybe a skill set, let's say. And that skill set is to not emotionally presume you know what anyone else's words signify and also to understand that any symbol conceals a cluster of meanings and that you have to figure out what meaning is hidden by the word they're using. And then if you get a chance, try to make them a little bit aware of the fact that there are multiple meanings hidden by that word. And what they mean is not the word they're using. So that's a skill we can work on and promulgate. Uh, do you have any practical advice for trying to engage in those sorts of conversations? I, I think of um, you know, my own uh, kind of journey along these lines, which again, as I said, kind of coming from that background, as I, as I said earlier, and then starting to kind of, uh, you know, bring into awareness all these modern critiques of that traditional uh, context, and then sort of having my mind blown by that. And it's sort of like, wait a second, 
things aren't the way that I thought they were. And then like trying to tell people, you know, no, it's, it's different. And you create a lot, you can certainly create a lot of uh, alienation and, and, and you can antagonize people yeah. in a, in a destructive and not constructive way. Um, but at the same time, it does seem possible that you could constructively engage folks uh, by saying, and I don't know, this is the question is what language do you use? How do you, how do you, uh, how do you interact with folks by trying to kind of dig a little bit deeper into the, what, what, what's hidden there, what's being hidden and, and mutually um, kind of do something constructive? Well, the first thing I'll say is that the, the most basic thing is not the linguistic element. It's like, I mean, uh, if you have kids, you probably understand that they're going to say a lot of stuff that is factually nonsensical as far as you're concerned, but you've got to support their growth by presuming that they're growing taking them seriously and comporting yourself in a happy, supportive and context toward them, right? That you embrace them, you're on the same page and you're going to listen to them and you're going to say, well, here's, here's how you could take that one step further if you're willing to do that. Maybe here's a challenge for you or something like that. So I think that's the general frame. But there are some languaging strategies that I've used successfully in various contexts. I don't think they're the full range, right? This would be a great project was, let's try to document the languaging styles or the interaction styles that are useful in this context. I've found, um, I guess I would say descriptive, generic, and quotes, something like that. Quotes is, I talk to somebody using whatever language they're using, but I put quotes around the charged words, and then we can just keep having the discussion. As long as I don't gesturally make them feel bad with the way I'm being. Uh, another one is uh, generic. So here's a story. I'm at my, I think it might be a Thanksgiving or something. I'm at my aunt's place. My cousin's there. My cousin comes over to me and says, uh, the, the midwife who was at my birth is here. Uh, she wants to talk about Satan a lot. Uh, I can't talk to her. Would you talk to her? So I go over in the yard. It's just this party. Everybody's there. And it's just this one old lady sitting by herself. Right. And uh, so I try to sit down and talk to her. And as we talk, I say the Lord. And I uh, right, And I say it, I mean, an archetypal function. I mean, something that equally applies to Kali and Shiva and Buddha and Christ. I'm, I'm speaking Jungian language. But she can hear that word, which is a generic word, and she thinks it means Jesus of Nazareth. So then I'm listening to her, and she can tell me things that actually might inform me about the archetypal structure of what that function is that I'm calling the Lord. So as long as I can keep my generic framing and link it to her specific framing, we can exchange information. She doesn't have to know that I'm holding this other framing. I just have to be able to relate to her from it. So for me, I, that's useful. Mm -hmm. I like that. Then Sorry, the, the, I guess a third thing, I've got one more example, which is I remember a situation where some Mormon guys approached me on the sidewalk one day and asked if I had a few minutes to talk about God. And I said, absolutely, but I'm very suspicious of language. So if you could just describe to me what you're saying without using the word God, I would be happy to talk to you. <laughs> right. And we had a fantastic conversation. Because God is one of those words where two people could mean logically opposite things by the same word. Uh, so you don't know what they're talking about yet. So if you're, you can't decide, do I believe in God? I don't know. I don't even know what that question means yet. Please describe 
what you're talking about rather than giving me the linguistic label of what you think is obvious. So if we can get descriptive with each other, which is a little bit more scientific functional, then we can have really good conversations, even if we disagree with these things. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I, I really like that. And I think it's, I'm always looking for practical things, right? Because, you know, there's so much that, that can kind of theoretically be explored, but then it's like, you know, the rubber's got to meet the road and, and how do you do that? Um, it's interesting because so much of the, I think, challenges that I personally experience around these issues are in conversations where a certain um, terminology, a certain framework, a certain um, symbol set has become so absolute that I think it sort of, it, it doesn't allow for that kind of more general descriptive uh you know, generic for formulations, right? Um, I feel like in certain contexts, if I were to try to attempt that, I might get something like, so there was a son of God who came to the earth and he needed to save you, right? And then it's like, okay, well, I think I know what tradition you're talking about, but it's <laughs> like, there's a particular framing that for people, it's, it's, it's all about all of their kind of emotional investment is in that framing. And um, that to me be, is, poses a challenge because um, I, I, I feel like then it's sort of, it, it, it constrains maybe some element of the conversation. And I don't know how, whether it's, you know, talking to your aunt's friends, midwife or whoever about Satan or what have you, um, you know, how how do you negotiate? I mean, are it, 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 maybe, maybe here's a way of asking the question: Are there some instances in which a translation process just isn't possible, or 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 is it, or should one always kind of aim for and look for the ways in which whoever your interlocutor is, wherever they're coming from, there's some way in which a conversation can be constructive and uh, pursued because one of the hardest things about this sort of multi-perspectival uh, pluralism is that um, sometimes things do seem in, in a way mutually exclusive. And uh, that's something that I continue to kind of bump my head against. Right. Um, and I don't know, what are your thoughts on where it seems sometimes there's just there, this isn't going to make progress or this isn't going to be constructive. It's, it's both those things, right? Like I think uh, any good priest is going to come at it from the attitude that there's, there's always some way. But in reality, uh, sometimes you're never going to find that way. And that's okay. You don't have to be able to equally well reach everyone all the time. You're only built to be able to communicate with some people within some range over some period of time. So we need to know our limitations and we need to not necessarily feel too bad that we can't get everybody. That's why we set up a pluralistic system where there's different ways to do it, right? Different, there's different types of people. And they may have to hear it in different ways. Somebody's version of God is there's no God, That's, <laughs> right? So fine. Or somebody's version is it's only Krishna. Okay. Um, there's maybe context in which that conversation can be moved forward and that might not be this context. So we need to know our limits, but we also have to have a general orienting attitude, which says, in principle, I'm willing to bring anyone in and see how far that goes. And, and that's true in a lot of discussions in these sorts of communities. Like I'm, uh, 
I wouldn't say gregarious. I'm very inclusive. I think of it as kind of very uh, imperialistic. Like I always think Julius Caesar meets someone. He always thinks, what can this person do for me? Like in his mind, everybody's on his team. It's just a matter of figuring out where. Right. So if I deal with someone and everyone else is like, yeah, that guy's not in the integral community. He's not really meta modern. I'm like, I don't know. He and I get along pretty well. I just like maybe we need an irrational attack dog for certain things. <laughs> That's you know, I'd I'd love to pick your brain about that. And maybe this isn't the right context, but I'm I've just started this group and I'm finally in the first time kind of in a in a moderator position where there's just such different personalities and in the 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 content in many ways is it's shared content, but temperaments and styles and everything, um, which is actually in some ways a question I was going to ask is it's like, um, you know, because for the first time I'm trying to be like, uh, how do I balance what, what this person is doing with what this person is doing? And um, in some ways it, it's a, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange situation uh, to be in. Um, and I think what you're saying is exactly right. Uh, but it's very hard to do. Um, it's hard to maintain that openness. I mean, in some ways, this gets to that kind of Karl Popper open society paradox, right? You know, it's like um, you, you, you're you able to be tolerant of everything but intolerance. And at what point does cutting off a certain kind of intolerance create a kind of intolerance? And um, but uh, but I'm I'm intrigued, too, by the degree to which any symbol set including integral including i'm sure eventually and maybe even already but certainly and inevitably metamodern spirituality uh creates these kinds of dynamics where the symbol set itself is sort of absolutized and and it's like this is the thing and and there's only this and how do we you know if you're not going to deal with me on my own terms about this thing then then you're wrong and um uh it it creates a lot of challenges that which seem to be endemic to all spiritual communities, all communities, certainly throughout time. Um, and I think that that's a unique challenge in, in any community that is explicitly um, kind of engaging with spiritual topics. It's one thing if you're just, you know, you're just a gaming community or whatever, you can say, ah, screw that guy. But if you're, if you're dedicated to the practices of trying to be open, inclusive, pluralistic, et cetera, then it, it creates a, a real tension between um, where, where you draw certain lines. Um, and maybe that's just me rhapsodizing. I don't know if you have anything to add to that or any insight or, again, practical uh, suggestions that could be helpful. Well, I would say, I mean, we have to strike a balance between practicing the skills. And a lot of that's our inner practice, right? Uh, if you sit down, you read a Facebook post and you fly off the handle, uh, that means you're your personal work on being a taller and open human being, it probably needs a little uh, furtherance. <laughs> Indeed. Um, at the same time, we often, when we're trying to be open, we can't figure out how to include exclusivity, right? And there's a lot of places like the internet is not a place where if you ban somebody from your group, it's a big deal. There's 10 million other groups for them to be in. They have not been shut down. It's okay to say, hey, that's not how we want to interact in this particular group. You'll be fine. You just don't get to be in this discussion. And there's a philosophical justification for that at some point, which is at the intimate heart of non-duality, which I call it the separator is the connector, right? There's no, there's no boundary that isn't also utterly a linkage to the point that we're both sides are melted into each other in a sublime way. 
so we can really have an emotional spiritual trust in the fact that boundaries are okay yeah but i would also like to throw in something that it's always been an issue around say individual complexity right that communities like metamodernism and integral they have a higher than normal percentage of people who will be able to um, deploy the skill set that keeps them from being absolutistic. They're going to give you, we're going to get some of the normal social human phenomenon, but we're going to get more people than the average group would who can keep themselves out of that problem. And there've always been people like that. You know, the, the meeting of the Sufis and the Gnostics is a little bit different than the meeting of a fundamentalist Christian and a fundamentalist Muslim. So, yeah, you brought up some some uh, some metaphysical adjacency language, and, and I, I do want to talk about that for sure. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to that soon. But one question I have is um, you also brought up the, the meta crisis and you brought up the the kind of existential precariousness of our current moment. And I think that uh, that does seem to be an element that that is common amongst different uh, framings of metamodernism, metamodernity, that there is this sort of urgency of the present moment. Um, and I think it, it sounds like the way that you talk about it, that we're on similar pages in the sense of, of uh, seeing a, 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 an in, uh, a relationship, a, a very direct relationship between sort of the meaning crisis and the meta crisis. And um, so, for example, you say in your uh, Future Faces of Spirit uh, presentation, um, these are serious issues, too. It's not just about transcendental aesthetics and higher deve developmental subtleties. It's about survival and about having a life worth living. The religious project is whatever connects and strengthens people so that their whole organism knows it should look after itself. There's an epidemic out there of loneliness, cultural despair, stagnation, and bad habits. People aren't sure if it's worth it. They aren't sure if we're worth it. They aren't sure if we can actually improve and reorganize the world toward health, meaning, and empowerment. And then you say the art of consecration has been lost. We aren't producing enough extra meaningfulness to invest in ourselves and each other and into the world we inhabit, which I think is beautiful and right on, right on the money. Um, and on this topic, you, uh, you also say a spirituality uh, of the kind that you're talking about is the only thing that can adequately mobilize us to meet the urgent and massive multiple crises in the world and in our society and within our souls, bodies, and brains. So, Talk a little bit about that. Uh, the relationship of the meaning crisis, the meta crisis, the relationship of this sort of uh, broken, bad faith religion that we've got going on and the real religion that we need that seems to be in many ways uh, the kind of balm or salve or cure for a lot of the, the, the things that, that ail us. Um, go. Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, I, I think about it from kind of two sides. There's a, a productivity problem and there's a self-sabotage problem, right? The productivity problem is in our personal lives, spiritually, and in our collective lives, religiously, we need to be adequately integrating the things that are of the current moment to the point where we produce something that can envelop that and give us the good conscience to embrace it and the extra motivating energy to act on it because we actually do know the solutions to a lot of our problems 
but we haven't mobilized. And the classical way to mobilize is to have a strong shared meaning field around something that goes beyond our ordinary lives and our sense of what the world is. We need to make some extra juice to run the engine to implement the strategies that might uh, address the accumulating problematic results of modernity. On the other side, there's the self-sabotage problem, because before there was Verveke and the meaning crisis, there was Nietzsche and the problem of nihilism, right? And he didn't proclaim nihilism. He assumed it was already the case and needed to be solved. And uh, my take on that is, uh, well, one of the takes is he's looking at a lot of self-sabotaging conditions, a lot of ways of going to zero within society and the individual. So cognitively, we can go to zero. We can self-nullify the mind by either pretending we believe in something that's not intellectually valid or by projecting the highest intellectual value into a non-existential space that can't, uh, making a non-thought into a thought and making a non-thought into the ultimate thought. But then emotionally, we can um, not feel our feelings. And physically, we can eat food that is not nourishing. There's all these ways that we can um, try to go to zero, that we can be regressive to the point of self-nullification in any of our subsystems. And that's the general nihilistic problem. And we inherit these habits, which are to some degree cemented by our traditional idealistic frameworks, you know, whether that's religious or political or anything else. These idealistic frameworks entrench self-nullification habits. And then whatever we're trying to do, we're actually undermining. We've got 5%, 10%, 15% suicide motivation in whatever we're doing. So if we get out there and we try to save the oceans, which we need to do, because that's a really urgent problem. Uh, if we're doing it in a way that's self-sabotaging and we secretly want to destroy ourselves or our culture or something like that, then we're not going to pull it off. So there has to be this return to health, right? This come back to Jesus thing in terms of the alignment of all of our individual subsystems with actual positive, healthy, overflowing value that can be embodied. And then also that has to be done in a way that adequately produces the, the fuel of excess meaning, right? And if we're in a meaning crisis, that means the thing we do that makes meaning, we haven't been doing very much of that thing. And we look back at other times in history and go, oh my gosh, they were doing a bunch of it back then. Boy, oh boy, St. Paul organized some communities and they were really pulling it off for a while, right? And the, the goal is not to say and believe what those people believed. It's to do that same thing, to produce more than we need so that we can mobilize to transform, which is what the meta crisis requires of us. Mm -hmm. So, um, gosh, yes. So... One, I mean, there. sometimes I get hit with this sort of, um, you know, maybe it's kind of cynical, but it's sort of like, oh, you really think you can, you know, just change the world for the better if you get enough people, you know, having meaning. Oh, that's quaint. You know, there's a, there's a certain kind of cynicism there, but it's also a well-taken point, right? Because these are vast systems that need that need fixing. And it's sort of, uh, it, it might seem almost a little bit naive to presume that if we could just get enough flourishing active communities that that would really make a dent. Um, 
and again, here's where these practical pragmatic concerns come back because it's like, uh, I guess the question would be, do you think if we got enough healthy, active, meaningful communities that, 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 that would be, um, enough quote unquote, uh, that it would be, it would certainly be positive. I don't think anyone would, would doubt that, but, but in terms of meeting the challenges, these vast systemic existential challenges that we face, um, I suppose I'm asking you this as much as I'm asking myself, but, uh, is it enough? Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, question, question, and and yeah, and, and riff and go where. I mean, you're right. the The answer is we don't know, right? So whatever our framing is has to make um, make it okay in a way, whether we know or we don't know, because like it is these. This is the right thing to do, and it's the right thing to do whether it works out or not. Um, and that's yes, it's an interesting. Uh, novelty relative to this historical moment where we're looking at all these accumulating mass scale problems that could change everything. On the other hand, it's also the normal human condition, which is everybody's going down at some point. <laughs> and what you do today has to be meaningful if you have a tomorrow and if you don't have a tomorrow. Right. So that that's where your individual spirituality really comes to the fore is you're either living and practicing internally in a way where you're giving yourself this feeling of, yeah, this is all right. This is worth it. And if you've got that, then you try to make changes and maybe that works and maybe that doesn't. If you don't have that, then even if you successfully made those changes, your life's a failure. The idea of of actively seeking to to create positive change by the introduction of a new discourse, let's call it a new framework, a new language uh, that could really impact the world um, for a, for let's just presume a, a positive way. in in, in some of the ways that you're talking about, is that, is that a little bit, too much pie in the sky, dangerous idealism, or is that precisely what we need to be cultivating and, and perfecting our, our better visions at a grand scale that could be scalable, op, you know, operative and, and, and functional in ways that re-energize people's sense of the sacred and re-energize and revitalize people's connection with each other, with community, with these, with these religious conceptions that have been, become a bit, um, uh, well, they've, they've lost a certain amount of their luster. I mean, it, it, do you think a project like that is is worthwhile, or and or do you think it could be? Uh, I don't know. Maybe too too short sighted, too caught up in ego, too uh, narrow in not appreciating how these things have been attempted before and either inevitably fail or lead to some catastrophic end result. What do you make of that? Well, there's a question about how it gets done, right? Obviously it could be done in a shitty way <laughs> or it could be done in the best possible way. And if it was done in the best possible way, how worthwhile would it be to do that thing? Uh, and a lot of that comes down to who we are because we can't necessarily operate outside of our own instincts about where we have energy to work on things. And if we are successful in relating to a numinous quality through whatever epistemological lens we view that thing, then it's going to move us to something that we can participate in. 
Maybe that'll turn out to be the right thing or the wrong thing objectively, but all we can do is work on our thing, right? So for some people, that's gonna be more heavily a vision and a narrative to output. I think that's not a bad thing to do. I think if you do it in a healthy, smart way, then it's definitely not counterproductive. Uh, whether it works, we don't know. I don't think it's as basic as trying to promulgate the skills out of which people produce narratives and visions, but that may be a, just a specialization. People are going to work on different things. Um, yeah, I think there's not, I mean, there's no guarantee that having the right story, the right vision is going to make a difference in people, especially if it takes time to evolve individual depth and complexity. The most important thing to do is to make people healthy and give them the prompts they need to develop complexity and depth within themselves so that they might be able to act on those things. And that's why I often find some of these critiques, whether it's of integral or other similar communities of saying, oh, well, you're just talking. I don't think that that's necessarily fair. If, if you're creating a discourse that allows other people to in, do uh, self-development, um, and a lot of that is through processing and through, you know, simply finding a map that works for you can be incredibly illuminating and can help you along your, you know, uh, personal and spiritual growth. Um, I, uh, I think that those things can be incredibly valuable too. So I, 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 I would even just posit um, in the context of these sorts of conversations that I, I feel like having a healthy discourse, even if it's not like, well, what did you do with it? Did you go build a system? Did you go do this and that? It's like, well, no, so much of what um, uh, is, is called for in this particular moment is for everyone to try to make is try to be better, try to try to rise to the challenge of the moment. And so um, just for whatever it's worth, I feel like um, I don't know, those critiques are, uh, yeah, those are challenging critiques, you know, and in some way, it's always a bullshit critique, right, which is that the great philosophers and sages and the people we look back on as having lived really well, they were always doing something that the people around them thought that's not good for anything. Why are you working on that nonsense? Right. And now we go, oh, I see. They were working on the best thing possible. <laughs> uh -huh. So there's that. Uh, but there's also a lot of valid critique, which is we have to constantly remind these communities that they need to be focused on life and embodiment and ecology and real projects, because an idea is not just good enough. You have to make things and do things. That's very valid, very valid. We always have to remind ourselves. However, a lot of those critiques are garbage, too, which is it's like you pick up a book and you're like, I read this book, but it's just a book, man. You know, I went to an intellectual discussion space online and there was nothing but intellectual discussion there. How can that get anything done? I'm like, you went to an intellectual discussion space. What did you think you were going to find? Rocks and trees? Like, so you have to understand yeah. the context. It's no use critiquing the context for being the context. And a lot of people today, you know, in information overwhelm in the world have this very hasty feeling that if what they see right now doesn't solve all of their problems, then somehow it's completely bankrupt. And we've got to relax out of that and take a slightly longer view. Even though there's real urgency, we can't just judge everything against every possible problem and then move on. We've got to go, yeah, you're, some people are going to be working on 
abstract arcane discussion that I don't understand. And it's okay that I don't immediately understand it. It's not their problem that I don't immediately understand what they're saying. <laughs> well, and you, you, I like the way you phrase this too, because you talk about a sacred style. And so uh, again, on the topic of sort of these pragmatics, um, so you say, uh, and again, this is from your future faces of spirit, uh, you know, presentation, monologue, sermon, what have you. You say this all depends on you speaking to the audience. It depends on you to live more sacredly and to participate in the sacralization of your existing civilization. And that means, among other things, that you must take the risk of good faith toward the meaning of spirit. You are responsible for conceiving of the religion that you can feel good about. And if there is something I've left out or something you've not heard, uh, then I urge you to add it in your version. Don't be passive. Don't let other people define religion while you sit back like a movie critic and decide whether or not you will click the like button. Be proactive. Um, and so speak a little bit to this uh, embodying the sacred style, because I feel like a lot of this, it, it, it does, it's it's precisely these issues of like, we we have this capacity or to, to proclivity to look back and we say, oh, yeah. people used to be sacred. They used to be uh, doing all these things, but now, you know, well, that it doesn't work. Um, and it seems to just kind of take enough people just being like, no, I'm just, I'm going to embody the sacred style, you know, uh, fads, trends, uh, expectations be damned. Uh, what is the sacred style and what does that look like? And, and, and how can we, how can we do more of it? Yeah. The decision to just go for it, I think is part of the metamodern ethos, right? Uh, the new naivete, so to speak. Uh, and what you were talking about there, it's got two aspects. So one of the aspects is the, the art and the science, the, the technique of sacralization. Uh, and the other side is being active or passive relative to concepts, terminology, things like that. Right. So religion is a good example of a problem we have, which is we're too much like a TV audience with all of our terms. We go, well, you know, I've heard people using the word religion and I don't like those people. So therefore, I don't believe in religion. I'm atheistic. Right. And I want to say to them, why, if you think they're idiots, why did you let them define the word? Why did you accept their definition? Why didn't you say, oh, because I think you're idiots, therefore that's not the definition of religion. I will define it in a way that is up to my standard. And if everybody did that, the standard would advance. So there's an element of sociocultural linguistic passivity that we've all sort of inherited. And maybe this goes way back. I think Heidegger says somewhere that language is withdrawing itself from us, <laughs> right? That we're, we're not really functioning as the, as the active agents anymore. And we need to take that role back. It's not okay to go, those people use it that way. And all I have to do is react against that. No, you have to take that word and give it your best meaning, not try to come up with some other word or explain to me why that's the wrong word for them to use. Take that next step, that post-deconstructive step, and give it its full meaning as far as you're concerned. So that's on the one side. The other side is what are the arts of sacralization? You know, and again, the shamanic is a place where we can study that at kind of ground zero, right? Long before any of the elaborate religious traditions get involved, people living in a campsite with each other are figuring out in a very basic way how to do this. And we still get that if right, a couple of people take peyote and go out into the woods, they're going to rediscover some of the sacralizing arts. You pick up a feather and you're like, oh, look, guys, this feather, 
right? It's, uh-huh. it's full of more than itself. <laughs> I think it's super meaningful for some reason, right? And that's, it, it sounds dumb and it sounds unformed, but it's, it's the authentic roots of what this process is. How do we come together in a way where we can perform visceral experiences that make us feel that we and our relationships and the things in our world resonantly contain more than they appear to contain? Because that's the extra with which we have to relate on a spiritual level. And that's what we need to collectively feed on in order to mobilize to make change. Do you do you see that there would you say that there's something in the metamodern sensibility and all this that is also conscious of the fact that it's very easy to uh, sort of reduce that to say, oh, well, that guy's just high on peyote. Like there's nothing special with that feather. Um, but then say, well, but it's the experience in that moment that, you know, there's something valuable there. It's sort of like, uh, uh, for me, I, I think something that, that resonates with me a lot about sort of the, the metamodern take on all these things is being aware of and understanding and, and, and really accepting the modern and the postmodern critique of these things mm-hmm. that, would, that would have the potential to just sort of stop them in their tracks, but instead keep going with it you know it's sort of like it's not saying because you can always say yeah but it's just this or someone could say i had this incredible experience where i had this i i i dropped some acid the other day and i saw this and then there's always this roll of the eyes like yeah well you were high on acid so of course you saw some weird shit but like i think there's something in the meta modern kind of take on these things it's like yeah okay and that was the context, but that doesn't mean that it somehow is negated just because you can in some ways either find an explanatory model for it or because you can root it in some chemical or physical basis or what have you, that there's something legitimate and genuine about it. Greg Denver talks about the protection of interiority in metamodernism, and I think it applies to a lot of uh, religious or spiritual experiences. Is that a, something that resonates with you? Oh, sure. I think... Um... One of the things that these meta discourse communities have in general is an expansion of validation, right? We see it in meta modernity. I think uh, obviously Ken Wilber has given a real good defense of uh, anti-reductionism and nobody's completely wrong and everybody's true, but partial and all that kind of stuff. In a way we're saying, let's, let's take the word just out of the equation, right? It wasn't just a hallucination. It was a hallucination. Hallucinations are amazing. And they tell us something really important. (laughs) Right? So it's a repositivization, which again, I would see as sort of an extension of Nietzsche of trying to be the universal multi-perspectival affirmer. Uh, And bringing this back to the art of concentration in Nietzsche again, to my take on the eternal recurrence in a way is... um, to will the eternity, right? To will the maximal validation of whatever we're going through in order to maximally coordinate all the forces of ourselves in that moment so that we are more harmonized and more available to take action in the next moment, to say of every it was that I willed it thus, right? And when you see the shaman you know, lift up that feather, he's lifting it like he stands outside of time. This feather is being lifted in all dimensions for all of eternity, (laughs) right? And that's part of that tempo, that approach 
that's part of the art of sacralization because we need to say not only of every it was that I willed it thus, but of everything that anybody values that it is valuable. You know, they're not wrong that it's valuable. They right, they might not have the full context about what it means, but it's still valid. The 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 point, the the zero ground is that everything is valid. That's where we start. So all we move, we move forward into abundance, not into lack. It's interesting because so many postmodern conversations uh, tend to be prefaced by innumerable caveats. You know, you Mm. might say something like. I recognize that what I'm about to say comes from the perspective of a middle-class white cisgendered man, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of own your perspective as much as possible. And then you say what you're going to say, you know, even, even saying uh, from my point of view Mm -hmm. and, and, and prefacing that way is different than just saying your point of view. Um, And so there's an interesting way in which, you know, the, the more, uh, aware of perspectives you become, the more you kind of need to preface things so that people realize kind of where you're coming from and the aw- and the fact that you are aware of where you're coming from. And I wonder, I mean, again, on the level of pragmatics and art and techne, is there a certain way that we could build this into certain ritual practices so that when you hold up that feather, it's not, I think in an absolute way, in a naive way that this feather is being held up right now for all time, et cetera. But is there some way almost that we could say, I understand that what I'm doing right now is a willed enactment and embodiment of the sacred style. And I choose to do, you know, I I wonder if if this is a language we could somehow build into our vocabulary um, around these things so that, you know, people it's, can yeah get on it the makes same it page. complicated as a it language. does it as, a, as a thought system i think it's really useful right like what well, we we don't want to be absolutely converted to our own feather religion in that moment right we want to be saying right. something to ourselves are our, oh i'm temporarily in this situation optimizing <laughs> this this phenomenon right which is great and we should be thinking that way and we should have that context to the best of our naturally developed linguistic and social contextual capacity to talk to other people from those other contexts, right? And there's, there's one of the beautiful things about pluralism is we realize a lot of things that seem normal to us actually were skewed in some way. And we've got to address that. We've got to take that pluralism seriously. Now, there is a way in which that goes too far, right? When you, somebody goes, well, in my opinion, I'm like, of course, it's your opinion. Right. Why, why are right. you saying in my opinion? I know, That's I know. Weird. So is that person then embracing a complex pluralist multi-contextual reality, which is good? Or are they pulling back from their opinion out of some kind of concern? So those two things have to be addressed in slightly different ways. And I think there's no reason why the, the world in quotes has to be considered to be less than the world in assertion, right? And that's kind of where one of the places that gets me into the metaphysics of adjacency, which is like God is not less than God, <laughs> right? It's actually more. We should consider those quotes to be amplifiers, right? That we're making progress by doing this in a contextualized fashion. So, contextuality so do you keep- is part of the uh, ritual amplification of the of the act do you keep the uh the quotes then or are you saying that once you realize that you realize you don't need the quotes you could do it either way right you you keep the quotes when you want to explain a point about the quotes um but that's no different than like 
here's my holy book and I'm going to put it on a pedestal on a beautiful piece of red silk and leave it open at this page I like. I've contextualized it. I didn't just like, hey, here's a book. I gave it this space and, and quotes give it a little bit of space as do brackets, yeah, yeah. right? So when people say, you know, in my opinion, as a uh, uh, early 21st century cisgendered white male English speaker, right? Now that's all, in a way, that was always already there. It was just hidden right. in brackets before normal statements. So as your consciousness expands, you, you realize that the things were always there in brackets and you want to say those things in brackets. And that's great for general discussion. You don't always need to say it in the process of the sacralizing ritual. Right. But I think we need to feel good about that and not feel like that detracts from our fullness and our vitality and our spontaneous authenticity. Yeah, no, I agree. It makes me think of, um, well, one, I'll just say, yes, I completely agree. And I, it, it, it starts to become obviously ridiculous. The more and more you need to own your, con your context, because then half of what you say winds up being caveats and preface before you can finally even just be like, but I didn't like that movie. You know, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, thanks for completely contextualizing your existence so that we can tell you, you can tell us that. So I, I completely understand and agree with that. But two, I also wonder, I mean, there's a way in which like, you know, when you went into a, a medieval cathedral, you were entering a space, it was framed. It was, you went through these successive layers of liminality that brought you closer and closer to a particular way of being. Right. And it was like the, this journey into a new ontology almost. And I wonder if in a, I don't know, wherever we're going with these developing spiritualities, I wonder if we could create spaces, literal spaces, or maybe digital virtual spaces in which that is likewise the case that just by virtue of the fact that you are in this space, you've sort of as it were signed on to agreed to accepting the context that we're all gonna have to just you know uh as it were lay aside our contextualization we're all aware of what we're doing so we don't need to do all that and then we can just embody the action we can embody the ritual in the in the sacred style without endlessly needing to contextualize it and then that frees up you know, all of that energy to be able to just, you know, embrace it. Um, but I feel like it's still, it's like contextualizing something versus something that's not contextualized. They really are different things. And if there, if it's a, it, if there's a way that you can kind of preemptively accept and accede to the contextualization and then embody it, um, that would be, I think, a constructive approach to these sorts of things. I think so too. And I think the, um, you know, one of the things that comes out of the integral model is, is this affirmation of multiple lines of development, right? So you, you can get to a place where you cognitively or verbally recognize the need for contextualization, but that doesn't mean you're there emotionally, you're there morally. It doesn't mean you can enact it. If you could, if, if more of your being could get to that place, then you have the opportunity to experience that as a step forward and not a step down, a critical depressurization of the phenomenon. And that said, the very process of contextualization should enable the ability to go into different spaces for different modes, right? You don't have to be contextualized in the moment of the ritual. The, the context is around the cathedral. You're like, okay, now we're gonna go into the cathedral. That's a contextualization. Right. Right. And I think there's there's no real limit on our ability to uh, create 
sacred acts, sacred spaces, sacred forms that have a higher probability of eliciting the sacred mode out of people. And I think computers can be a real aid to this, right? If we can get a sense of what the algorithms and patternings are that have always made beings like us more likely to experience epiphanic phenomenon, then we're in a really good spot. And our allies here, who we often don't talk to enough, are the engineering and design guys, right? Because who, who built that cathedral, right? It wasn't philosophers, wasn't mystics, it was Freemasons, it was brick guys and physics guys and engineering guys, guys today who are in design, it's the Buckminster Fuller, it's the Christopher Alexander, it's that kind of stuff. How do we set up spaces where operating in that space, no matter how we've contextualized it, allows us to enact a mode shift that brings multiple dimensions of ourselves together into some kind of excess that makes existence worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. I think also the relation of sincere irony plays a, a role in this too, um, in the ways that you're enabled to live in and enact certain states while the irony kind of is in some ways what creates the context for you to be able to do that. But um, yeah, no, I'd like to hear too about, um, about how any or and or all of these things uh, relate to this broader kind of uh, kind of framework uh, theoretical model of of the metaphysics of adjacency, which you're developing or have developed or um, are are working on, uh, and I think that you know it's interesting because so much of this is so embodied. It's so um tactile tangible in some ways and at the same time then you throw something into into the mix that's you know highly metaphysical and it becomes immediately <laughs> incredibly abstract and you're like ah oh, i'm not sure if i fully understand how non-dual this and that so um see if you could kind of tie those together with what we've been talking about and okay. and, and uh um well i was um engaged with some people who had an integral post-metaphysical spirituality orientation trying to figure out what that means beyond just the fact that we can do productive spiritual practices without necessarily believing in them. And I sort of asked myself, what is the presumed metaphysics implied by the post-metaphysical frame? So I was looking at all those things and I started to realize the basic thing here is that contexts are in conjunction, right? There's a, a next to, there isn't just an assertion that everything is in this universal 100% category. There's an awareness that everything's next to something else. There's always some other perspective, whether that's some marginalized perspective I have to fold in or something I'm rejecting or that I've got some architecture that holds them all together next to each other. Or I realize that somehow next to is the same as the same as in a way, right? The separator is the connector that non-duality is, is not the assertion of a monistic oneness. It's the assertion that the separation is itself non-separation, right? It undoes the fundamental ontological distinctions without canceling them. That it's not oneness, it's not two-ness, right? So there's this built-in structure there where the two things are continually kept in very close proximity to each other. So I was working on that and I thought, oh, this is a metaphysical frame based on adjacency or proximity or something like that. Which means that if I took this seriously, the most fundamental syntactical layer of reality is approximation. It's almostness. And I would say to myself, 99 is the new 
right? And that doesn't mean it's less potent than 100%. It means that what our ancestors called equal, what our ancestors called 100%, it was always 99.999. And 99.999 can give you that thing that you used to call 100. It's just also a little crisper, a little more true. And that's not just about math and infinitesimals and the attempt to uh, conceptually language adjacency and proximity. It's very visceral, right? I spent a lot of time in some Buddhist groups doing a lot of chi training and things like that, right? There's something that doesn't happen here and it doesn't happen here. It happens here when they get close to, which is the same as how fields operate in physics, right? The electromagnetic field is hypothetically filling the whole universe, but that magnet doesn't move that paperclip until it's close enough, right? We had this old idea that maybe life emerged on the beaches, in, in the adjacency between land and sea, where there's these phenomenon. And, um, you know, in the tantric idea, we might say of lovers that they want to merge, but they don't want to merge, right? They don't want their pancreases located in the same physical space. What they mean is they want to get closer to the point where a new function is evoked. And functions emerge at proximity zones. And that we can say of everything that exists in creation, that it may have been created at a proximity zone, that the world is actually uh, constructed of almosts, of approaches, of, of next twos and proximities and approximations. And there's a lot of problems that go away when you take this framework. And it has on the one hand, a mystical non-dual side. On the other hand, it reads out non-duality as a functional aspect of the manifest universe, which it should be. It also gives you a way of thinking of mysticism, integralism, and pluralism as all subsets of the same general kind of thinking. So, uh, I mean, that's my overview. Okay, very cool. And it's interesting because the way that it makes the most uh, intuitive sense to me is immediately at the mystical level. Um, so I'll just say that first, because sure. um, there's always been this element to which you know, you talk about the union mystica and the, the idea of divine union and whatnot and, and the experience of the one. And there's always this tension in a lot of conversations. I don't know that maybe just I've been a part of, or maybe it is actually something that kind of comes more and more as, as modernity progresses, because we have a greater sense of our individual selves mm -hmm. and we don't want to abandon that as much, but like the notion, the desire to not necessarily become God, but to kind of somehow experience the immediate presence of god and yet also the immediate presence of all these other individuals that we've known and so dante for example in his vision of the celestial rose and the empyrean you know it's this vast stadium seating of you know all these different souls and saints that are all there in their own unique individual element but they're also all somehow kind of highly adjacent to the one ultimate, you know, deity figure. And so there's something about that, I think, that is a little bit more attractive to to folks than maybe more that kind of like Atman dissolving into the ocean of Brahman model yeah. where, you know, and um, so that in that sense, it seems like, yeah, that, I like that. It makes, it makes a lot of intuitive sense where it doesn't make as much sense to me as like, if I were to think about other areas where one might apply metaphysics. So mm. let's think about like the numbers one and two, um, you know, one is not two. It is by its oneness, not two and two is not one. And so um, if we're going to maintain the element of those distinct 
you know, concepts, we need to have them separated. And if they start to become more and more the same thing, then they're sort of losing what uh, inherently they are. There's also maybe a way in which this doesn't apply in the same way to mathematical concepts. I don't know, but um, you know, I mean, you could apply the similar kind of thinking to other sorts of things that like, there's a way in which um, definition is the act of separation. Um, and so uh, by keeping things separate is sort of uh, is what makes them what they are, which of course is also always inherently been an issue with, mysticism and plurality versus unity but i'm sort of losing the thread here but maybe you could at least address okay the idea sure. well yeah what of... i'm going to say is the is the separator is the connector right and that has mathematical and mystical significance right mystically speaking and i think the sufis do this really well and in some ways adi da who ken wilber was really into does this really well in terms of devotional non-dualism i surrender to the other because the other is not different than me and this is an extension of that fact i'm not in a relationship to another separate other uh, my relationship to another separate other is the form of the relationship to that which we are always already together in right whereas if i just say i'm just here by myself as the always already non-separateness I haven't done separateness as well as I could. I can really do non-separateness by understanding it as the radiant illumination of apparent separateness, right? So it's where I find the apparently separate that I found non-separateness. Now that's, a, that's an abstract high-level conceptual version of non-dualism, but if you can embody the feeling of what that's like, then that's really profound. That opens some huge doorways spiritually. Now, in terms of logic, I don't think it's problematic, right? We don't need to say, in order to separate one from two, or just in order to say that one equals one, we don't have to say that absolutistically, right? We can say something that one is almost entirely not two, <laughs> right? There might be a little area where it's vague, right? When you say it one equals one, you've got a computation. You go, well, on this side, and I go over to this side. All right. They look the same. Can I be sure they are exactly the same? That there's absolutely no difference? That nothing occurred in the transition that made a difference? I can't be 100% sure of that. Maybe there is a little something that a one before it equals one might be a little different than the one that it equals. I don't know for sure. Right. And this is an area where postmodern critique comes into play. We want to take that really seriously and go, you're right. It's not necessarily the case that just because it looks the same on the algebraic chalkboard, that it is 100% equal. But nonetheless, here's where it gets metamodern nothing is more equal to one than that other one. That is the maximum equalness you could get. And it might not be 100. It may be that you could never say for sure it's 100%. But that's as close as you can get. That's 99.9999%, right? So that we can say of all of the separative functions in logic that they never worked because they were 100% explicitly separately defined because they are connected. They're part of the same network. They have an element of blending. They were disconnected enough to operate 
and they operate at these conjunction thresholds. They operate through that equals sign, which is not 100%. It's a mostly. This is mostly this. It's mostly this enough for this system to function, right? So we can reaffirm all of the traditional things about knowledge without thereby being absolutistic totalitarians about our ontology. So it's almost, it's a metaphysics that almost privileges difference rather than unity. Though at the same time, I say that, and I, it's probably an over a slightly an overstatement of the case. I just think of traditional metaphysics does very much work on this, you know, um, the idea of, you know, a equals a, you know, a is not, not a, and that sort of a thing, the principle of identity and whatnot. And, um, but you're building into the mechanics of all this sort of this appreciation that, that there is always a slight, a slight difference almost. Um, and which works a lot better with like Heraclitian notions of becoming and things like that, I suppose, which is, I think, well, which again, also, I mean, Nietzsche was a big fan of Heraclitus and it's, it, it seems to, to go a lot better in some ways with our understanding of, of how the world works rather than this Parmenid, Parmenidean kind of platonic uh, absolute beingness. So um, uh, is that, am I getting elements of that? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's fair. I think Heraclitus and Nietzsche and, you know, Derrida and, uh, you know, Zizek's notions of parallax, if you read the parallax view, right? There's a lot of ways where what we think of as leading edge critical and self-critical pluralistic thinking uh, links to the great ancestral thinkers of dynamic transcendentalism. And there's no reason those have to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. I think they can both inform us and that metamodernism is a rubric whereby we can really affirm the depths of what the postmodernists were saying and say that that is in a continuity. It's cross-pollinating with all the things everybody else was saying. And so what's a way of articulating that? One way is to say meta adjacency is the fundamental metaphysics. Mm. That A is maximally optimally not a but not necessarily completely <laughs> it's just more not a than anything else <laughs> and and do you do you also feel that this does provide a kind of um you know in, in these different models of mysticism where there's the uh well actually this is um Oh, gosh. Uh, Rudolf Otto has a book, Mysticisms East and West. And he talks about there's sort of this uh, Eastern model and there's this Western model. I mean, I'm you know simplifying things a lot here, but there's like sort of Eckhart. And anyway, he, he, he basically says in the Eastern model, it's much more about kind of full on unity with the divine. It's you become divine. And then you even see that in kind of the Eastern Orthodox with apotheosis and whatnot. But in the West, it's more the creaturely you are in the presence of the divine and you are subsumed entirely by this relationship of creature to creator. Um, and this almost seems to kind of provide a sort of synthesis of those two by almost saying it is it, it, because it, it, it's, it's a unifying element while simultaneously maintaining enough of that difference such that there is a distinction between you could say creator or created or what have you, but there is, it's not a full on complete 100% enmeshment and, and unity and identification. It's something more like there is still 
I don't know if subject object even distinctions maintain in this context, but there's, there's enough of a distinction that there's still um, the thing that is being unified with the, the unifying thing. And, um, and that, that to me is very cool. And again, I, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth about this model, but does that, does that. Yeah, absolutely. That convergence is one of the things that turns me on about this, right? Like there's a, we might call it an East-West dialogue, although if we go way back in the East, they're arguing with each other about these things. But there is this traditional argument about me, me and the divine versus me fused with the divine or me and the other and me fused with the other, right? And you look at those things and go, there's got to be some way in which these aren't really options or they're options up to a point, right? And what is that point? What is the point where those two things are the same thing? And that's the point where you are almost the same as the other right <laughs> and i almost wonder too if this sort of buddhist you know uh element or the addition the new factor of like uh you know rather than saying like the hindus oh there's this atman it's like no there's an atman there's no self i wonder if it works in the sense of of negation as well that nothing is ever actually fully negated there's always you know is zero equal zero or is there an element in which there's yeah. There's a something to that zero. I don't know. It's just, you can start to play with these ideas in interesting ways. How many ways. problems go away if you just say there's not quite a self? Right. <laughs> you know, or that, or again, if like, if, if, if someone's using the language of self and that seems to be a, an, an inseparable or that's an uncrossable divide between someone who wants to talk about self. Well, again, if you can kind of talk about the negation of self is like, well, there's, it's not a full on a hundred percent zero negation. There's a, there's a something to the nothing. Um, it could create some, some interesting. Uh... There's a very practical languaging thing here that I think I probably picked up from Chogyam Trungpa, which is the word seems, right? Seems like there's a self. That's not a commitment. <laughs> That's still in the Anatman zone, technically but it affirms the presence of an Atman, which is as real as anything else, right? It's not that there's no soul in Buddhism. It's just that that soul is as illusory and temporary as every other real thing, but those are the real things. <laughs> right, right, right. So you go, well, did I see the face of God? It seemed like I saw the face of God. And if I say that, I'm talking in a way that's perfectly compatible with modernism and postmodernism, because yeah. it is true that it seemed like I saw the face of God. If I take that seams out and I say, listen, I saw the face of God, I'm making an assertion about my interpretive competence that is unnecessary for the experience that I had to be validated. But I can validate that experience and talk about it to people who haven't had it in a way that operates in multiple paradigms just by saying, yeah, this is how it seemed to me. And it also, it, 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 would, it would seem that the seams presents a nice contrast to the just in that reductive just, you know, oh, I just did this. I just was on drugs. I just, you know, whatever was fasting. And so I had to hallucinate. It was just a hallucination. You know, that seems in some ways does the counterbalance of that um, potentially. You know, one of the interesting things that maybe I would want to mention, and I touched on it earlier, is different epistemological lenses on the numinous, right? And this is very integral, so to speak, which is, uh, if there's a functional process by which I personally or us collectively uh, accesses an experience of coherence that saturates us and goes beyond us 
and that in a relationship to which we become adapted differently. I can see that as a first person, second person, third person phenomenon. I have those interpretive options. That might be a higher self coming forward. It might be an additional energy coming forward. It might be uh, a transcendental other coming forward, right? So that all of these different approaches can be on the same page if we have lensing options. And I think we do have lensing options. So it's important to say that there, there's some generic description of the functional experience whereby it's okay for people to think it's my higher self, it's a strange energy, it's another power, it's an other to whom I'm related. Those are all valid. Those are all on the table and we need to embrace all of them. They're all good options. I hear that too. And I'm, um, again, something I just am, am always trying to sort of uh, tease out from a lot of this is, is that uh, in the, in the, in the attempt to find multiple lenses and multiple perspectives on things, um, I'm also cautious of trying to avoid uh, sort of justifying potentially, or maybe just straight up uh, unavoidably pathological uh, approaches to certain issues. Right. Um, and so um, I'm also, maybe I, it's possible I throw around that word pathological too much. Cause what to me might seem pathological is, 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 you know, not necessarily that for everyone, but, um, I, in the attempt to try to make distinctions, there's always that effort to, um, well, to define, you know, which means to, to separate into distinct units. And, um, and especially when it seems to be that we live in a world where, religion so often is not operating effectively. Um, I mean, you yourself make the distinction of, 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 you know, uh, what do you call it? Fake religion and real religion. You could call it good religion, bad religion, what, what, what have you, um, I, to use your own language around health and, 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 you know, the, the vitality, I think you could also call it pathological religion ways in which these, uh, these symbols and, and this, this modality becomes inhibitive, constrictive, unhelpful, unsalutary. Um, I'm always just trying to figure out, you know, how can we parse those things and make valid distinctions between the two uh, and yet, you know, not avoid um, or, uh, you know, there's sort of two things you can do, right? You can, you can say, no, it's not that it's this, or you can say, yes, it's that, but only partially. Right. So there's that transcendent include element, but there are ways in which we also have to say, no, it's not that too. And, uh, and that can be hard when the mantra and the, the impetus so much is to try to do this multi-perspectival thing, which again is a good and a good thing to do. Um, and so I just keep kind of, uh, you know, getting hung up sometimes on, on in, in trying to make those distinctions, where are those lines drawn and, and, and what are those real boundaries? Because I've seen a lot of unhealthy religion, fake religion and all that, and it's not good and I don't like it. And I'd like it if, if we were doing a little bit more of the good stuff. And so sometimes, you know, there needs to be like, no, we don't do that. We don't do that thing. And um, so then it's like, well, what, it, what are those things? Um, Actually, maybe I'll ask you, what are those things? What are the things that we can say, we, we're not going to do that? Yeah, that's a tricky thing. And I, I want to come back because I had an idea for a future conversation for us. And I'll see if I can remember it at the end of talking. All right. 
Um, pathology is really interesting, right? There's some general things like, you know, we all need water. Our brains all need glucose. There's some basic pathologies. If we don't get those things, we behave wrongly. Uh, then there's some different neurological wiring things. Some people are born without the ability to make any progress on their moral line or something like that. <laughs> Uh, but generally speaking, in a pluralistic developmental context, pathology is always relative, right? Which doesn't mean it's invalid or less valid. It just means we have to understand it relativistically, uh, which is pathology is relative to the level you're at or the level you want to be at. There's no, I always say this, there's nothing wrong with minerals. Minerals are great. But if you wanted to turn me into minerals, you're a murderer, <laughs> right? So uh -huh. it's regression to a level which presupposes a privileged fact that I want to be at the level I'm at or at a higher level. And whenever somebody wants to take you to a lower level than the level you're at or want to be at, that's pathological. And I think it's a perfectly valid thing because we are where we are. And things are pathological relative to those things, right? If somebody wants to roll yes. society back to a theocratic uh, uniformity system, then we're like, oh, you're a fascist. That doesn't mean it was wrong for those societies to be like that a thousand years ago. It means that's not where we want to be at. When modern Germany rolls back to medieval theocratic society, we're like, oh, Nazis, this is a problem. Right. Right. It wasn't a problem in the 1500s. It's a right. problem in the 20th century. Right. So all the pathology registers are relative, but once we accept that, then we can treat that seriously as, oh, you're taking you, this is regressive and therefore it's pathological. But, pa but, but the, it's relative, not just to the individual, but also to the culture, to the cultural yes. stage yes. too. So that's, what's hard is that sometimes maybe something might be, this is really helpful for this person individually. Mm -hmm. But if you try to scale this up to society, we already did that and we're, you know, going sure. back there would be pathological. So there can be some tensions between individual level and, and this and is Donald Trump, right? Sure. Maybe for him, it was legitimately his next step to become president. But his presidency appeared to roll us back a little. Sure, sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, or, or you know, like for someone, it might, I mean, here's a great example, because like, I think this is very real, is that some people say come to uh, let's just say a kind of conservative fundamentalist Christianity, a kind of certain forms of evangelicalism. And that to them feels like, wow, I was an alcoholic. I was abusive. I was this terrible human being. And then I found this thing and now I care about morality and I care about this, you know, all these other things and I become a better person. And you're like, Hey, that's great. And then, but then if you're like, well, so, you know, so what do you believe in and what should the world be like? And they're like, yeah, well, Jesus is going to come back any day now and we all need to repent because, you know, right. like the world's going to end, you know, you're like, okay, well, maybe that's not what society needs. So, sure. um, so I find that to be, let's just say that there's that component to this tension between different ways that pathologies can operate individually, collectively, et cetera. That's one thing. And then another thing is, um, I see if I've lost my train of thought here. Uh, oh, so so 
there's another way of talking about this multi-perspectival thing that comes up in a lot of metamodern conversations. And I've talked to Jeremy Johnson and Lena Anderson, and they both kind of talk about this way that we can sort of toggle between things. And there's these seem to be different models that I'm trying to get my head around because we can either say that all stages, let's say, are present in the moment and present in ourselves, and we can kind of, you know, toggle in and out and 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 let's say it's sunday or uh, saturday comes and i want to light some candles and go back to the iron age and i can do that and then i'll i'll jump back and do an orange or you know uh, or yellow what have you so that seems to be one idea but then there's this other idea and it seems a little bit more linear it seems a little bit more like what you're saying which is that at any given stage whether it's individually or collectively that there's you know a level of complexity that's been reached that you know, you don't want to regress from because if you jump back or jump down, you're you're losing something. And and so I'm not really sure how to how to make those both work. I'm not sure what these could be different models of meta modernism. They could be different meta models, different integrative models, what have you. But they seem to be doing different things. You know, is like do is what I'm trying to do. Like to use your example, you're redefining in some ways or at least correcting the de definitions of words like God and soul and whatnot. Now that seems to be taking something that one generally finds in like a blue space and, and upgrading it into like a, a yellow space, let's say. Um, so you're taking these words and you're bringing them into a new code, a new stage. So that's model one. The other model is no, it's Sunday. So let me jump back to blue mode and I'll go to church and I'll worship and I'll believe in, you know, Jesus as my savior and the way that I'm going to go to heaven and this and that. But come Monday, I can jump back into my orange phase and I'll go to work in the office and all that. And those are two different things to me. And I, and I, I it seems like different people are, are, are saying different things. And I'm curious how you would either synthesize them or choose one over the other or what have you. Yeah, I would say that one of them is more pragmatic, uh, which is that in terms of our actual practice uh, and talking to each other in a casual way, yeah, we're going to switch between modes. But if we take a more hardcore philosophical view, that's not necessarily what's happening, right? Because we're like um, a minute from now, I could remember yesterday, right? So the the past could be built into the future. There's these kind of loop structures whereby when I, I mean, Wilbur had sort of arguments like this with um, Stanislav Grof and, and some of these people who were trying to challenge him on his progressive model because they were doing therapeutic regressions. But the idea of a spiral is that you loop back, but you loop back in a new way. If I revisit myself as a five-year-old I'm not having the same experience I had as a five-year-old. I'm having a new experience of me now as a five-year-old. And that didn't happen in the past. That's a new thing. I've taken a step forward, right? So if we understand that that's the shape of progress, then when, we, when I go back to my amber blue traditional religious mode and I'm like, hey, I'm just going to totally go with it, man. I'm not going to worry about these higher things. I'm just going to be in that mode for Sunday. Great. But I'm still entering that mode with all of who I am, which is something different. And it's experiencing it at least a little different than I would have experienced it 10 or 20 years ago, or than the way the guy next to me is experiencing it. 
So we can revisit these things, but when we revisit them, it's us revisiting them, which is, it's a new thing. Yeah. And that, but that almost then, and I hear that and I, that makes sense to me. I, but it also seems to be a little bit different than this idea of like what I get from this Gebsarian kind of ever present thing where like these modes are ever present in this kind of eternal present that we can kind of potentially inhabit. Now, obviously, I mean, well, I'll just own that that's a, 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 a lens, a perspective, a, a framework that I'm, I'm not familiar with in the, in the extent that certainly that like someone like Jeremy Johnson is. So I'm, I'm probably butchering it to some degree or flattening it a lot, but that's what I take away from that is that there's somehow this sort of continual present in which all these things are somehow immediately accessible or open for habitation. Um, if I can sort of find my way there, which again, just seems a little bit different than this idea of I can spiral back to a sort of version of where I was when I did this, but now recontextualized because of everything that I've since experienced. And those just seem like different models to me. And I haven't been able to wrap my head around sure. a full synthesis of them. I don't know if they are synthesizable. Maybe they're operating in adjacency in some way. And uh, uh, maybe I mean, that's... that would be my position. You're only going to be able to get them so close, but uh -huh. you can get them pretty close. And traditionally, the esoteric spiral is the way to mediate between circles and straight lines, right? So that we say, yes, there's progress, but on the other hand, maybe it's all always there. Um, there's, and there's different ways to try to explain that. Like one way is maybe you, you know, what a guy like Ken Wilber or any other kind of developmentalist Piaget or anybody would say, are these different emergent levels. Maybe you have all of them from the beginning, but, I don't know if you ever saw those old commercials where they have different cars with different batteries and they all go forward and finally the Energizer bunny or something goes out ahead, right? So they can all start together, but it might turn out that one of them goes further, right? And if you check at stage four, you check at stage eight, you're like, oh, this one dominates. And then this one dominates. So there's a way for them to all be there from the beginning and also to have emergent seniority of certain ones at certain phases, Right. Another way is to do that kind of spiral thing whereby you say, yes, I can revisit all of them because they're all always with me. But in actual fact, I'm only at one of those positions at any given time. And that makes a linear track. But it's not a linear track that undoes the reality of the fact that they're all co-present. So then I need a spiral or something like that to try to synthesize that. And yeah, my position is that synthesis will never be perfect. doesn't have to be perfect. Nothing is perfect, but it can get real close. Uh, Layman Pascal, thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to speak more about uh, myriad fascinating topics um, that are adjacent, as you will, to all these things. Um, adjacent and maybe even transcending into whole new realms. Uh, but uh, thank you so much. Um, is there, are there th is there a particular place where you kind of direct people to explore your work is it your Substack? is it you just don't even care or um is there i don't is even there... care i, I right. want people to have to dig around and find <laughs> fragments of me in different places right let's uh yeah <laughs> avoid the the virtual castration as much as yeah. possible yeah yeah or just just contact me directly yeah there you go <laughs> what a novel idea cool man all right great well let's uh let's speak more soon and uh godspeed um Appreciate yeah, it. Fantastic. It's always is a, there's a real sweetness here 
with you for me and i love the intelligence and the level of depth and sincerity you're bringing to this brand thanks man i appreciate so thanks that. For all your efforts cool all right we'll be in touch take care my okay. friend